Welcome back to Now, the podcast celebrating a variously compiled world of pop. In each episode, a variety of fabulous guests and I explore favourite compilation albums, as well as considering how these collections shaped pop culture and now fondly stand as time captures for our own musical and life milestones. I hope that you will enjoy the pop memories in this episode. Please follow the show through your favourite podcast provider and join in with me, Ian, on the Pop Rambler Twitter, Facebook and Instagram pages. Joining me for this episode is John Azelwood. John is an award-winning journalist, author and broadcaster. He's one of Britain's leading music writers, currently writing for Mojo and Classic Rock, as well as having been a regular contributor to The Guardian, Q, Melody Maker, Arena, amongst many others. John has interviewed almost every major pop star of the past three decades, including Kurt Cobain, Kate Bush, Beyonce, Kylie, George Michael, Pink Floyd, Fleetwood Mac, Shania Twain, The Cure, Sting, and a host of others. He wrote the acclaimed sleeve notes to the chart-topping reissue of George Michael's Listen Without Prejudice, Volume 1, and John is also a regular contributor to television and radio and can be seen on the Sky Art show's Rock Icons and Discovering on Sky Arts and also Channel 5's wonderful Greatest Pop videos. And as if all of that isn't enough, John has written four books, including most recently Decades, Joy Division and New Order, and Radiohead, Life in a Glass House, both published by Palazzo and of course available at all good book stockists. John, welcome back to now. Welcome to you, Ian. How are you? I am absolutely wonderful and it's great to have you on board. Let's just begin with your most recent books. Classic Rock described decades as engaging and definitive, whilst the independent called Life in a Glasshouse a must-have. With such devoted and analytical fans, how do you set about bringing something new to the narratives of Joy Division, New Order and Radiohead? Well, there's always something missing from narratives. The point that you start upon is a point which has not been started on before. With Joy Division and New Order, almost everybody who's been involved with the band has had a go at their own book. The drummer, he's written two books. And nobody has really pulled the lot together to establish a reasonably definitive version. And because New Order and and Joy Division are such a squabbling family, then clearly everyone has got their own extremely sharp axe to grind. Because in the big New Order Joy Division fight between Peter Hook and the rest of them, both sides have behaved like spoilt, silly children. Mm. But there's also a lot in what both sides are saying too. And clearly, if you read Peter Hook's wonderful books, Mm. you get a great version of Joy Division in New Order. But clearly it's not the version any more than Bernard Sumner's much more circumspect version of his Joy Division in New Order story. So if you pull these together, then hopefully you've got something that hasn't quite been done before. And yes, you're right. You do have very, very analytical fans. But I think they were were waiting for something which pulls all those strands together. Now, obviously, with Radiohead, it's very, very different. There hadn't been a Radiohead book for a while. And they're notoriously circumspect about having anyone probe a little bit under the surface. Once again, there was an opportunity to write the Radiohead tale and to, again, pull all these strands together and try and explain the central question which I had was how do these people make this sort of music and sell this amount of records? And that's a question that I was trying to answer. Whether I did or not, I'm not entirely sure, but I think I had a reasonable 
crack at it. And that's what I was really trying to encapsulate, that they're very much there of the music business. They're of the music world. Of course they are. They've always wanted to sell records, as all bands I firmly believe do. But they are not as others. And that's what I think makes them so fascinating. And how on earth, you know, go back, listen to to Amnesiac or Kid Mm. A, how on earth does this music sell as many copies as it does? How come this music is stadium music? Mm. So that's a massive thing to get your head around. It not only sold in huge numbers in this country, it sold globally. And of course, in America as well. Yes, absolutely. I mean, so the American American music tastes are often, I think, very much misunderstood and very much undervalued. That a lot of a lot of American bands who've never cracked it, you know, you go back all the way, people like the, such as the Grateful Dead, people people like that in the eighties and the nineties, groups we've never really heard of, like the Verve Pipe and um, Toad the Wet Sprocket, all those bands who sold squillions in America. But it wasn't it wasn't dumbed down music, whether you liked it or not. But it was intricate, intelligent music. And there's always a massive space for that mm. in American popular culture. And Radiohead, uh, I don't think they're particularly following in a tradition yeah. in anyone else apart from perhaps Pink Floyd. And there's a lot of flaws in that argument. But there, there, there is something in it. So Radiohead did not see the gap, but I think they exploited the gap in making incredibly intellectual music, which doesn't mean he's got no heart or anything like that, mm. but it is complicated. It's not throwaway. It's not simple radio fare to go cruising down the highway. Yeah, It's difficult music. It's intricate music that needs listening. And there is a place for that in America. And I think there's the Europeans are often surprised when uh, the, the United States embraces those sort of acts, but they do have a tradition of it. And that's partly because it's such a big country and there's so many of them that, of yeah. course, there's a space for, for, for niche everywhere. But Radiohead are much, much more than niche. They, When charts were important, as I, I believe they still are, of course, and I'd imagine you do too, but when they were really, really crucial, then Radiohead were a number one act. You know, they weren't selling a few cult albums and getting to 27 in the charts. They were huge. Fascinating to see where they go next and always always interesting to see the the unfolding soap opera that is New Order (laughs) as it continues to to be the gift that keeps giving. Yes, it does. I mean, whether there'll be reconciliation, I I just don't know. I mean, part of the problem with New Order is that people like Phil Cunningham, you're talking about them as being the new guys. They've been in it for 20 years. No. It's very entrenched the way both sides are going. But... If they were to get to their deathbeds and there have been some kind of reconciliation, you know, there may be regrets at that moment. And there's also, lest we forget, there doesn't seem any signs of any rapprochement from either side. No. It's, it's not as if someone's putting the feelers out. It's not even even like the Gallagher's. I really don't want to compare New Order with the Gallagher's. Mm. But, you know, you can see Noel and Liam keep putting little feelers out and there's little hints that they might be up for it, as is certainly not the case with what is now New Order and Peter Hook. So anyway, thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. The premise is that we dive into compilation albums, we have a look at one album in particular, and we're going to do that very, very shortly. But we always ask our guests, first of all, just to to provide a bit of background about growing up, musical influences, um, and how how your own musical journey began, John. So tell us a bit about that. I don't, I didn't know where it came from. I was so young, but I think the first thing that I, I, I really remember one was "Remember" by the Bay City Rollers. 
which was which was and is, lest we forget, a fabulous single, a massive great stomper. As a little boy, very tiny boy, I was immensely uh, attracted by this. I thought it, I thought it was it was absolutely wonderful, and I, I thought it was so wonderful. The first thing I did, and this is of course establishing the, the incredibly anal route that I would take for the rest of my life. The first thing I did was join the Bay City Rollers fan club. And, of course, I had no idea and no concept that the Bay City Rollers were were created exclusively to appeal to teenage girls. And I remember the forms came from this, this, for the fan club, on on the the, the bump. He said, who is your favourite Bay City Roller? And, of course, I didn't know any of their names. And so, luckily, luckily, there was a box to tick rather than for, for you to have this inside knowledge of the members of the Bay City Rollers. So I ticked them all completely random. And I think then I got loads and loads of black and white photos of Stuart Woody Wood coming <laughs> coming through the letterbox every few months. Now, clearly, I had picked Stuart Woody Wood as my favourite Bay City Roller. But those, those singles, then I must, not in a kitsch, ironic sort of way, I must stand by those singles. They were, they were fabulous. And the other thing that I got into first was Sparks. I realised, went on holiday, I was given by my mother a small daily allowance. Presumably this small daily allowance was to buy ice cream or perhaps some other uh, treat to enjoy during uh, the holiday period. However, what I realised is that if I starved myself and avoided any kind of treat for the 10 to 14 days in which we were there, at the end of this holiday, I would have enough money to purchase a long playing record. And I did. I bought Kimono My House. I know everybody else says they get onto Sparks through that Top of the Pops appearance. I didn't because I didn't see it. My Cubs night was on a Thursday. So I grew up virtually not watching Top of the Pops at all. Yeah. And so at the end of the holiday, I bought Kimono My House. That, I think, is is, is what started me off. You know, there's there's musical links between the bass Rollers and, and Sparks. Of course yeah. there are. You know, Sparks, I think, are the one band who, since those days, they're the band who have, have stuck with me, who have endured. Mm. Even when no one else was buying their records, I was. Yeah. And, and, and I'm not playing, I'm not playing the, the, the super hardcore fan, but mm. wow, they were great. Wow, those forgotten Sparks albums, you know, interior design, music that you, you can dance to, mm. those, they were s- still great. I always believed that rehabilitation would come their way. Yeah. Now it is, you know, I've been wrong about virtually every thought I've ever had in my life, but I've been right about Sparks the yeah. whole way through. That back catalogue is absolutely yeah. extraordinary and like i said they, they've been my constant companions yeah. since the mid 70s and of course they say you should never meet your heroes but of course you should and when you meet sparks i interviewed them the other week they're just how you wanted and i got it i, I went to russell Mail's house he, of course he was such a gracious fantastic host of course he was and it was you know ron came along as well but yeah going to sparks house as an adult after all those years later from saving my holiday money yeah. to buy Kimono My House, it just it felt it felt like the absolute completion of a of a of a circle. Did you share that story with them? Yes, I did. I did. I did. Well, I didn't. I, I had interviewed them before, and I, and with those things, it's really difficult when you're interviewing someone to say you've had a significant effect on my life because one, I'm not sure that they necessarily believe you, mm. and two, I think it sets a wrong kind of tone yeah. for 
an interview. You know, you have to you drop things in, not in order to to make them think I'm a super fan, but you drop things in because you know. Yeah. You know stuff and you can quote song titles, which I often have trouble remembering, but that's a side <laughs> issue. And then sometimes afterwards you can tell them. But sometimes I don't. Yeah. Sometimes it's, it's which which is is there's not hard and fast rules to mm. saying, look, you have changed my life. Now, you know, you know it's a simple thing. If someone said that to you about your work or me about mine, then obviously, obviously I'd be fantastically grateful. But it brings a slight awkwardness to it sometimes with spocks I, I probably told them the story even after interviewing them a couple of weeks ago i just i just had to say and they've got some idea of, of how i feel about it just had to say you know thank you and you've been there for all that time mm. and now you're, you're coming back um and they're very gracious about it they may secretly be thinking you know but uh, i think probably not I, I there's also the other mistake that a lot of pop writers make they want to be friends with people i think that's always just such an untenable situation yeah because your life is so different to what they're living and you're coming from opposite sides of the spectrum and also i think it makes overwhelmingly for much poorer writing you know not for a second there can be genuine friendships between bands and and journalists but i uh, frankly i'm always very suspicious about it it's not a practical situation and that's fine absolutely fine with that song called change which is an incredible oh, it's huge change but sparks rules big somewhere change is a really good example that was yeah. a massive hit in france if you go to france it's oh, sparks that band who had who had change and yeah. the, the little little parts even after the marauder period then they were big on the west coast of the united states when they went quite rocky you know, tips for teens and yeah and yeah. then the, the, the circle turned again they were big in germany for when do i get to sing my way yeah. and now they're, they're having top 10 albums in Britain again, and America's waking up. In July, in July, they're playing, they're headlining the Hollywood Bowl, the yeah. biggest show of their career. These are guys in their 70s. Yeah, it's amazing. Just, yeah. wow, wow, how vindicated do they feel? And they do feel vindicated, oh, by yeah. the way. <laughs> they're, not, they're not ashamed or embarrassed to admit it. I think they're, they're quite insulted by that idea of if you stay around for long enough, then people will start to appreciate you. You know, it's not going to happen to Shed 7, is it? Yes, the circle has to come round, but not because they've just been hanging about putting albums out. Yeah, It's just a slow realisation of what this incredible back catalogue is and how good they are as well now. I grew up in, in Rotherham and there were two record shops. One was Circles, which was slightly cooler than the other one, which, bless it, was called The Sound of Music. But when punk came around, then obviously I was absolutely taken taken by punk, The Clash. You know, I'd never heard anything so exciting as Clash City Rockers. And at that point as well, I could I started going to see groups as well because I could, you know, just about pass for 18 when I was a sort of 14-year-old dwarf. They... Security, security, security measures at Sheffield's top rank and limit club were not particularly stringent. So you could get in to see a lot of bands underage. Child of Punk, I loved all the indie stuff, the Joy Division, everything else. But it was also very Catholic too, mm. in terms. Of, so so I, I remember for my 18th birthday, me, this kid with all the, the Throbbing Gristle records and the, the Clash records, you know, loved Cabaret Voltaire and, and those sort of bands. For my 18th birthday, I took the few friends that I had to see Shack Attack. Again, I have to stress, there's no irony here at all. 
You know, we're not going as punks to to, to go do, 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 do nightbirds. No, Shack Attack, absolutely great. And yeah. by the way, they were fantastic live. The, the best 18th birthday I've ever had. That free ranging, I loved sort of other bits. I like the country singles. I liked a bit of disco. I love gay disco, metal. Not all of it, of course. That sounds really indiscriminating, but it's not. To me, it was just having a wide range of tastes. And often you you kind of go see you go see punk bands at, at Sheffield Top Rank. I remember going to see I think it was the Damned. And outside outside there was a mass brawl between the punks and the skinheads. Mm. Um, yeah, proper proper fighting. Obviously, I had nothing to do with this at all. But I couldn't understand why. I just couldn't understand why these people who liked the Damned as I did were fighting these people who liked you know probably the, the specials as I did too. I didn't get. I didn't understand. The culture wars. Mm. And I, I've never, ever been able to understand that. Yeah. Not in it's just music, which people who don't care about music say, but because there's so much great stuff in all genres. You know, you tell me, Ian, that you really like something. And I go, mm, all right, I don't know. Mm. You're right. I'm wrong. I should look to see why you like it and yeah. see what I can find in it. And I don't want to proselytise really for my own tastes. I know that that's kind of anathema to, to a load of music journalists. It's there. If I like it, then, you know, maybe you'll discover it and, and like it too. Maybe you won't. It's not, you know, music isn't conversion therapy. No. What you're describing there takes me back to my own love of compilation mm. albums. Because when you were yes. growing up, you yes. know, my first introduction to, to compilation albums were those K-Tail albums. And there would be 20 yeah. direct hits or something like that. And half of them you never mm. heard before. Mm. It was that dual love of having absolutely no money and, and being able to pick up cheap compilation albums. That, that made sense. Yes. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely. I just I embraced it mm. completely. I didn't, because I didn't have genrephobia, you were right. You, listen, you dig out those compilations. And I remember, I remember getting a KTEL one and it had, and I can't even remember the group now, but it had this disco song I, I'd never heard of. I think it was called Dance and Shake Your Funky Tambourine. It was a song on the KTL album that wasn't a hit. Yeah. They always had one. Clearly yeah. some record company has bribed someone <laughs> saying, oh, look, you can have Dynamite by Mud if you take this band who've done Dance yeah. and Shake Your Funky Tambourine. I, I, I can't even remember who it's by, but if you play the song, I recognise it, one, in ten seconds, and yeah. two, it's a great song. Yeah. I love that idea of finding new stuff. Like you, I suspect, I was always drawn to the tracks that I hadn't heard of. Yeah. And that was the absolute joy of compilations. They reflected my own mindset and the way that I felt about music. The UK charts, well, particularly through the 70s and 80s and, and the 90s, it was just this complete democracy of everything. And that's that that joy of a compilation album often reflects that. Yes, yes. The, the, char the charts very much understood how I felt. I didn't want the bands that I like not to have hits mm. i was uh, devastated when the clash weren't having proper hits you know when white man in hamster palais got to 30 something i was gutted i didn't and that top 10 you know the top 10s when you could have you know fiddler's dram day trip to banger yeah. vandervalk there was a, a legitimacy in that and that was next to the so-called proper music whoever you know you can choose your own act whoever was whoever was in the top 10 at the same time as fiddler's dram were they wouldn't sound like Fiddler's Drum and they'd be completely different. But so what? Yeah. Democracy, the, the, the unifying factor 
was that people were buying these records, yeah. except for the ones that were hyped. And I bet Fiddler's Drum wasn't hyped at all. No. I think I think it was actually on an indie record. I think I maybe my memory might be playing tricks here, but I believe that in the Enemy and Sounds and Melody Maker, you'd have Fiddler's Drum in the indie charts next to Crass. That's the indie chart accidentally being democratic. But you're right. The absolute the beauty of those diverse mildly bonkers top tens in the, the 70s 80s and 90s they were such a strength of british music absolutely and actually watching back the top of the pops reruns particularly the 70s ones there's no irony in the presenting style here are you know the angelic upstarts and now here's dana and you know it's yes there's absolutely yes. no yes. irony i can't understand that the, like the guilty pleasure thing always totally bypassed me yeah i just thought it was someone playing a load of great records you know, yacht rock or whatever it's meant to be called. I simply can't understand how how you can have an ironic appreciation for a record. Absolutely lost on me. I'm just, I'm, I'm just going to try to work out why I connected the Angelic Upstarts to Dana. There's probably a reason, but I'm going to I'm not going to go down that route. It's <laughs> a beautiful connection. That was all kinds of everything. Now here's I'm an Upstart. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Before we go to your chosen compilation album, let's just contextualise what 1994 was for you, John. How how was life? What was going on? Well, life life was was intriguing for me. I was I was at Q Magazine, which at the time was all conquering, globe straddling, and it was it was a very very fortunate place to be at that time. It was selling literally hundreds of thousands of copies each month. It was the size of a doorstep. And it was becoming super authoritative because it outsold. And pop music, as we know, is all about sales, but so particularly at that time were pop magazines. Because it outsold everyone else by, by some distance in Britain, and uh, we like to pretend, although no one ever bothered to check the figures in Europe too, that gave an enormous amount I, I, you know, I hate to use the word power. We're not running countries here, but it gave an enormous amount of access. For example, when a, a major American band came to town, a stadium playing or a arena playing American act, then of course they'd do the round of interviews and they'd hold up at the, the, the Hilton overlooking Hyde Park and they'd do a day of press. Hmm. Q was was in the position to say, no, we won't be doing that. Thank you. We want more. We want some kind of proper access. And because, again, to use that word power again, but because of, because of the, the sales figures, then people tended not to be able to say no. And that, of course, it made, it obviously meant I on a self-indulgent level could travel the world, but it also meant that access meant that bands, musicians put more effort into doing an interview. Mm. We weren't the, the 1030 at the Hyde Park Hilton. We were someone who they were stuck with often for a couple of days, tagging around. And they understood too, bands often innately understand the importance of what they're doing. They understood too that being in queue was either a major rite of passage if they were a young band getting their first queue feature, or if they were a hugely established act, then it was something which confirmed their power, bizarrely. Yeah. Yeah. But they had to put a bit of effort into it. And yeah, in the main part, they were absolutely prepared to do that so these i mean for me personally 
then, of course, there were fabulously exciting times. Q magazine was a good place to be. I don't think in 1994 there was a better place to be. The broadsheets hadn't woken up mm. to the power of covering pop music. The weekly press, people were beginning to have reservations about the weekly press and its approach. Mm. And here was Q with the big, broad church of music, which I was ideally suited to because I'd been a member of the Bay City Rollers fan club and I'd seen The Clash and Joy Division. So it was absolutely perfect. People, not I'd like to pretend there's hundreds of people queuing up to ask me this question, but it has been occasionally asked, what was your finest moment at Q? And mine, and I didn't even write the piece myself, it was getting Kenny G a feature in Q. And of course, listen to that music. It's hard work, shall we say. But Kenny G sold millions of records. I yeah. wanted to know why he sold all these records and what he was like. Yeah. Apparently he's lovely. The guy, I think Lloyd Bradley, bless him. I think he went into the interview. Kenny G, great. Yeah. Kenny G was really surprised to have Q there. And also to approach him in a, a, there's no sneering. And also I think the more people that you interview, be it Kenny G or Chris Cornell or or Kurt Mm. Cobain, the more people you interview is that in their own way, they're all absolutely passionate about their music. And I I learned that from interviewing Level 42 early on. I really didn't like Level 42 at first. I've gone back to them a bit. But you interview Level 42. One, Mark King is is lovely, absolutely lovely, and he overwhelms you, and he's got the firmest handshake a man could possibly offer. And he's lovely, right? So you're sort of charmed there. You're already on board. But you listen to him talking about Level 42, and he is just as passionate to that music, which people often regard as bland, Mm -hmm. as, say, Kurt Cobain or Ian Curtis. And I think that that was a huge learning curve. You know, people who you think don't care, they do care. They mm. do care about the music that they're making, and it doesn't matter the intensity yeah. of it. And that also is something which I think it benefited Q, because you weren't going to sneer at Kenny G. You were going to find out about him, and that's a huge, huge difference. And that, I think, is what makes for good writing and great stories as well. And yeah. I think if you can tap into that, then you've got a, a wonderful piece of, of writing. Q was it was essential. There were two things that always struck me. Who's on the front cover? And... Who's got a five-star review? Because the five-star reviews, I've got a fond memory. I absolutely, I'm, I'm sure Belly Button by Jellyfish got a five-star review back in oh, 1990. I was having a quick mm. look. So the album we're going to look at was um, March 94. Who was on the front of Q91, John? <laughs> oh, right. I'm sorry. That, let me just go through my big list of all the people who were on the cover at well, the time. I'll, that I was there. I'll um, put you in uh, it was it was Morrissey. Um, it was Morrissey, Morrissey. Um, because yeah. obviously Vauxhall and I had just come out. The quote in the front is Morrissey. Yes, I'm pregnant. Mister Chuckle Trousers yeah. unzips his lips. On the front, we've got Elvis Costello, Brian Adams, Holly Johnson, and Snoop Doggy Dog, and a piece on Europe's metal nightmare, death, Satan, and murder. What more could you want in a month? Exactly, exactly. It's a broad church, and I couldn't. You know, I mean, the, the the demise of Q is. For, for all sorts of reasons, but I still couldn't understand why. Mm. And the, the, a magazine which covered the waterfront, which just because you're reading a piece on the, the tragedy of European death metal doesn't mean you have to like the music. Yeah, It's an incredible, I, I vaguely remember the piece, it's an incredible story. Yeah. You know, loads of people didn't like Morrissey, but a, a well-written Morrissey piece mm. with him fully engaged, yeah. great, doesn't mean you're necessarily going to buy Vauxhall and I, but these are the... the the stories that that people tell 
I think that's a great loss in a sense that that mm. without going all things were better in my day, I think it's a great loss that the, the, the waterfront isn't covered like that. And I know everything is different and I know the top 10 is different and the charts are different. People are selling different about the records and everything is more niche. And that's all, of course, absolutely fine. But I just wish there was there was a little bit of scope to have uh, European death metal next to Brian Adams or Morrissey. I, I, I think I think we'd all benefit. Sadly missed. Um, I remember we had Andrew Harrison on and we were talking about, uh, I asked Andrew, how, how did the team pick the one word captions for the albums in the reviews? My friends and I used to often say, if something wasn't particularly good when we heard it, we would say, lacklustre, two stars. I, I did I handle the review section, probably doing it to that, uh, for that issue. And the, the, the one word came from a word in the review, which was which was written. And I think... Because we had such top quality writers doing these reviews, I think when they, they were doing a lead review, there was always an awareness that one of these words would be plucked out. And I think, and I, I certainly hope, that they thought about it. I, yeah, I remember the re- reviews coming in, and you knew it was a great review if you were choosing between four or five words, mm. which, of, which of those would be the headline. You know, you were right too about what you said about about the five star reviews, and it is. And I, for a time, for a time, I was absolutely paralysed by mm. giving something a, a five star review because I remember those the Dire Straits, who were seen as a Q band. That's not entirely fair, but there's something in that as well. There on every street was given five stars. The readers were really, really displeased, and there was nothing. There was nothing untoward about the five stars. But I wish it. I, I wished at the time very much that it hadn't happened. And this sort of prevented me from letting people write five-star reviews. And then several, uh, there may have been a couple, but there was, there was hardly any for years. Mm. And then I just got sick of it. And, the, the, and I never, ever, ever, ever told people or suggested what reviews people should write because people were on board with the Q ethos. And that was fine. If it was a poor album, then it would say, but it would sort of say why. Mm-hmm. And if it's a great album, then it would praise it. But yeah. for the one and only time, I went to three writers and said, right, this album, I've listened to this album, it's pretty good. Give it a five-star review. They were absolutely shocked, one, that I'd told them to, and two, that it was a, a five-star review. They did. They genuinely didn't They didn't know how to cope. It was, it was all a bit sh- sort of shaky. It was a, li- you know, a little bit taking a penalty in a cup final sort of thing. It was, yeah. oh, just to... to so this bonkers issue, and I, I talked about it with whoever the editor was at the time, and you know, he said, yeah, we really have to stop not giving anything five stars ever because mm-hmm. it's not right. It doesn't show our, our love of music. And so this bonkers cue issue came out, and it had three five-star reviews in it. The, the, the albums they certainly weren't worth five stars at the time. It was just to, to break that cycle. And from there, it was things became more natural, and you could have not necessarily more five star reviews, but the the five star review was no longer impossible. And so that's that's how it worked. I always met as well. It was five red stars, just in case you couldn't count five black stars. It was five red stars. <laughs> <laughs> now twenty seven with E seventeen and D Ream. Thirty eight of the biggest hits around with Real to Real and Ace of Base. 27 with Meatloaf and the massive number one from Chakademus and Pliers. Top chart hits from Dina Carroll and Duke. Wendy Moton, Enigma and Culture Beats. The 
cranberries and capella. Now 27, that's what I call music. We are in the spring of 1994. And you've chosen now 20. <coughs> it was released 20th March, the week before Easter, which is important for sales. And it was number one in the compilation album charts for a month. There were three number ones of the four number ones so far of the year. So now doing what now does very well. 38 top chart hits, it says. Although you could argue if they were all entire top chart hits. Record one, side one starts with Ace of Bass and The Sign. What a, what a song. History, history does not, does not look kindly on Ace of Base. No, no. Um, I think they're seen as they're seen as rather lightweight because they were selling squillions of records across the globe. They were massive in America, in Europe, and in Southeast Asia as well. They were huge. They're big, they're big in Thailand and Singapore. These are markets that record companies coveted because they sold a vast amount of records. This meant that they 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 kind of attracted my attention, and I loved all that she wants to without without reservation. There was also a, a, a story that was bubbling because one of the, the guys he's passed, he's murky passed as a, a member of a far right Swedish political organisation mm. had been revealed too. This meant that Ace of Base would find their way into queue naturally because uh, everyone else heartily despised them. There's only one man for the job. And there I was. There I was. So in 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 the manner of, of Q features in those days, I was dispatched off to Sweden to at the best hotel in what was probably Gothenburg to meet Ace of Base and spend some quality time with them. And it wasn't wasn't my, my easiest of interviews by by any means, partially because they're all four there. And the women who were, were reasonably, reasonably friendly, they absolutely and utterly hated not so much the music that they were doing but they hated that it had brought them any kind of attention whatsoever they were they were they were people who really really didn't enjoy being remotely famous they didn't enjoy me being in the room with them and they they didn't like the idea that this post all that she wants album would take them to even more stratospheric levels so they feared mm. and they didn't like that at all. Also, there was a big Christian undercurrent to a lot of to, to their approach too. And mm. we've seen this in, in later life because one of them has just gone off and had a sort of gospel career, a Euro, Euro gospel, which yeah. is a, often unheralded genre. That and I think the notion of, of fame conflicted their, their their spiritual beliefs as well. And on the other hand, then you had these two guys, Joker and Buddha. They're just sort of music backroom guys who quite enjoyed the success, loved creating, and they didn't have the, the pressure that the woman that the women had. Mm. So there was this massive great conflict. And then I had to talk about the Swedish Nazis. And at this point, this point, my approach was like, I'm really sorry about this, but you know, the, the Nazi stuff and everything and you know, Sweden far right and do, 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 do. every member of the band got up and left. <laughs> Not as a kind of walkout. Just to leave him to talk to, to talk to this question, he looked he looked devastated. So me and him were, were on our own and talking about it, and I, and he said it's all been a, a youthful mistake. And he said I'm very very sorry, and I uh, hope we can put all this behind us and everything else. They were a kind of quite a conflicted group. I mean, I knew instantly after meeting them that this this wouldn't last much longer. Mm. The women were clearly already quite open about looking to get away from this. And I know yeah. one of them got away much more than than yeah. the other. But at the same time, they were making the sign. 
which is perfect Europop. A bit like All That She Wants, but not like it enough to be a facsimile. A great opener to a compilation album. And wow, look, yeah. we've got it's I think it's I think it's almost perfect pop. It's a brilliant yeah. record. And if you can if you, not you personally, of course, you're you're on board with this, but if if one can put their snobbishness away, yeah, then Ace of Base made some great records, and this yeah. was one of them. Yeah, absolutely. It was number two in this country, number one for six weeks in America. <laughs> Uh, first Swedish mm. group to simultaneously have a number one song and album on the uh, Billboard Hot 100 and 200 albums, which is, which is, I suppose, one to pin on your wall. And produced by Dennis Pop, which is important because here your mm. is the beginning of what would eventually become Britney and Backstreet Boys and Max Martin and everything that kind of came on. And uh, of course, sadly, died in 1998 as well. So, you know, lost very, very early. Track two, this was the first number one of 1994. It is Chaka and Pliers with Jack Radix and Taxi Gang. Twist and shout. Taxi Gang? Taxi Gang was, of course, Sly and Robbie. That's they right. produced this. And that gave, I think, this this version of Twist and Shout with Jack Radix doing his, his, his vocal stuff. Chakademus and Pliers, of course, in the long tradition of Jamaican artists named after tools such as Tenor Saw and people like that. You had this great sounding record because Sly and Robbie, is, as, as well as playing on it, they produced it too. Mm-hmm. So it sounded, it was a wall of, of reggae sound. Mm-hmm. Now, it's, it, the, what I think people, again, I've got to use the word sneer. Uh, people who sneered at this type of music, you know, the old reggae cover, is that reggae has always had, always, this tradition of covering pop hits, covering, doing unlikely covers. You know, you can think about, say, Ken Booth, Everything everything I Own, things like that. They're, they're taken often very, very white music and turned it into pop reggae. And this is, of course, pop reggae. It's not hardcore, but it sounds so full. It's so brilliant. The vocals are very, very earthy. And in a sense, I think with these songs, it doesn't matter what they do. It works better, I think, when you do have a crack band playing this music, and that makes such a difference. And Even if you take the vocals off, just listen to how tight that background is. But it's, it's, it's nobody selling out here. It's just part of an absolute reggae tradition. Next to that, we've got D. Ream. Uh, things Can Only Get Better, um, which again was a big number one hit, a month at number one. This is a song that has an afterlife, obviously, as well, for many, many reasons. Mm. Well, I mean, it had a prior life as well. It had mm. already been released and hadn't hadn't done quite so well. Somehow, somehow it got missed. Peter Cunner got him si- himself signed to a, to a major label. And of course it has the afterlife in being the, the anthem, Tony Blair's Labour. And you have these, these pictures of John Prescott dancing perhaps slightly clumsily, although obviously I'm not in a position to judge anybody on their dance moves. <laughs> John Prescott jiving, jiving is the word that I was looking for, at uh, the Royal Festival Hall, yeah. to the sound of this. And this this had, <clears throat> I think, repercussions for Peter Cunner in terms of that, yes, it meant that he had uh, a song, which even now is referred to uh, on the political landscape, yeah. outside its, its existence of a song, Naturally, naturally, such a fantastic song that I, of course, had to go and interview him. And I did. And we went to Northern Ireland, which, of course, is where he's from. We went to, to Derry, I think, or, or Derry Stroke, London Derry, um, mm. where he was doing an outdoor show. We ended up, we ended up doing the interview in the, the council chamber of London Derry Stroke Derry Council, where an awful, which is a very significant, place in the, the history of, of Northern Ireland. Clearly the, the troubles were still 
ongoing at the time. And, and Londonderry Stroke Derry was a, a, a complicated place to be in. But there was the sense that Dream at this time were bringing people together. They were due a pop star. They hadn't had mm. that many from Northern Ireland. Here was someone who was actually having a number one single with a song that, irrespective of its hinterland, said something at the time about Northern Ireland. And this song, this song of optimism and uplift, yep. was making making a difference there. We flew into Belfast to, I think it, it's Aldergrove or probably George Best Airport, as it's now called, I think. For some reason, I can't remember what the reason was, we either didn't have a press officer with us because I think people from record company probably couldn't bear to be stuck with me for two days at that point. <laughs> so they had, a, they had a, a local guy. He was absolutely, he was a lovely, lovely, lovely man. He was, he was absolutely overwhelmed about Peter Cunner being in his car. And he took us on, we drove from Belfast to, to Londonderry Stroke Derry. And we went on a diversion because he wanted Peter Cunner to go to his house. He wanted Peter Cunner to have a cup of tea in his kitchen. <laughs> and it was absolutely bizarre. I'd never met Peter Gunner before. I've never met the guy since. But there was a lot of rolling of eyes. And, you know, he went along with it perfectly well. And it was a sort of lovely thing. But this detour, this detour to go to a man's house to have yeah. a cup of tea. I think he probably wanted to tell people. But it was sort of such a, it was such an honour for him. And he was so lovely about it and so, so keen. You know, I was a bit, I'm looking at my watch a bit. Going, you know, I've got to interview this guy. He's got to play a gig. No, no problem. We'll go there. We'll all be in time. And he he took us there. Seeing the concert in Londonderry Stroke Derry was kind of a beautiful, uplifting experience. It did, uh, it's a bit trite. It's just, you can talk about the healing power of music and all that stuff. But I, I think there's, there's, there's sort of a bit more to it than that, in the sense that music can bring disparate, antagonistic communities together. And I think that does without overstating it, make a difference. But this is this is a great song, and it sounds so fantastically uplifting, but it's it's been hijacked by outside forces. Yeah. And I think also, I think there's a sense that Peter Cunner knew that this was his moment, and he, he may deny this to, to his dying day, but I think he knew that for him, things wouldn't actually get any better. Okay, um, we move on. Always front loads... A now album with the hits. So we've got big hits here, and that continues. Track four is East 17. It's all right. However, what's interesting, this was the sixth single to come out from their first album. And usually by that point, you're kind of sl- starting to kind of have diminishing returns. This actually was the biggest hit of their career so far. Number three, and the beginning of what would be their probably best chart-performing year as well. I actually think this still sounds brilliant, this song. I do too. I mean, they, they were always they were seen as sort of take that light by I think the teeny audience as as well as as the, the the more mature audience. That was unfair. I think they probably made actually better records than than take that at that time. And it, it is it's amazing, like you said, that that's a sixth single because it sounds like it sounds like the first single. Yeah. Uh, it's got that, that gospel influence. It's got that classic songwriting thing, but. Mm-hmm. Tony Mortimer was an interesting character. He, I think he was he was one of those people who you wouldn't imagine this from how he wrote songs, but he was one of those people who didn't really seem to like music because mm-hmm. there, there was a, a feature we did in, in Q at the time, which was your record collection, which is basically an excuse to go to a pop star's house, frankly. Yeah. Um, that's, how, that's how I got to Sparks' house, I think. Um, you go to the house and they would show you 
tent records that had changed their life, that had, had influenced their songwriting. And it's just great. You'd have a chat about with a musician about music that he or she liked. Great. What could possibly go wrong? With Tony Mortimer, I didn't do the, I didn't do the piece myself, but I was certainly involved in it. Tony Mortimer, it did go wrong because he didn't have any records. He had to, I think, go out and buy some records to make it look as though he had a collection. I can't remember who did the interview, but he's got these records which we have bought, and he doesn't know anything about them. And maybe, maybe, maybe it's more a tribute to his songwriting talent, but it seemed to exist on his own completely, in absolute isolation and ignorance of music. But you wouldn't imagine it from this, and he was he was writing the song on his own. Yeah. It wasn't as if he was adding a adding a word and taking a third. Yeah, he was doing it on his own, and I, and yeah, I've never never met him, but I, I'd really love to 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 talk about that more with him. How are you doing this when you seem you seem to have no reference points? Mm. And he's seventeen sounds like they've got loads of reference points. Yeah, it's a great yeah. song. Absolutely. Let's cut to the Mercury Music Prize winning act of nineteen ninety four, which is M People. And didn't that cause a bit of controversy? Yes, I think uh, uh, M People winning the Mercury Prize was was obviously it's judged, but it, it it was a bit like the people decided, and the people prefer M People to the other people who were nominated at the time. I think am I right here? Pulp were or, or... it was very much the kind of Brit pop shortlist. Yeah. If I remember right? Yeah, there's great footage <laughs> of um, Mike Pickering and Paul Hare looking. As surprised, I think, as everybody yes. else in the room when they actually got it. Yeah, and it's it, it, it seen as a great mistake. I mean, I don't think it was. I, I, you know, it was, and it is hard for me to get excited by M people. And you know, mm. Heather, Heather Small's got this great voice, and she sounds like a saxophone and everything. I know all that. Even if I didn't like M people so much, I really liked the idea of them winning the Mercury Music Prize. I thought it was, not it was a mistake. I think arguably, arguably, the Mercury Music Prize's finest moment, yeah. giving it to M people. And this uh, this song is probably what people will remember them for. Has it aged well? I'm not sure. Very much of its time. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so we'll move on. Eternal at the beginning of their career, just just kicking things off. I've written here the classic four piece lineup, which I think means Louise was still in there at the time. Um, <laughs> so yeah, Save Our Love got to number eight. I like what I what I did like about Eternal was that they had great harmonies. They were always yeah. they were always well produced. I mean, I think I think Scott Cutler this one. And this song is a good song. It's written by uh, Eddie or co-written by Eddie of Charles and Eddie Fame. There was some sort of quality about it, but the magic of Eternal, I think, was in the vocals. This was very very American music. It was an attempt to make mm. American music by a very very British act, and that doesn't always work. But if you listen to it in isolation, and if you listen to those vocals, then I think that they might have had some kind of crossover. Yeah. But if you listen to the music away from the vocals, then it does sound very Romford. Yeah. You know, you mentioned that R&B thing, and again, R&B was still a, was a big American force in 94. There's not a lot of it on this compilation album. A lot of the American representation is actually more of a, and I'm not going to say indie, but more of a kind of rock thing, which is quite interesting. So actually, Eternal here are kind of carrying that R&B flag pretty much on their own. Yes, I mean, I, I, I think so. As ever, with, with the now things, you're 
you're restricted by a lot of the, the, the licensing yeah. and the, they were at the time. And I think, I think maybe, maybe a lot of the, the American R and B old style R and B, which is just mm. beginning to be on its way out. I think that was probably on other labels yeah, exactly. rather than the, the much more, the British and European based labels, which tended to do now. So Enigma had got this huge, massive song in 91, The Sadness Part 1, and this was Michael Cretu's second attempt at global domination. What would you have called Enigma? How he defined them? There's a bit of chill out. There's a bit, you can you can sort of hear a bit of Robert Miles in there. Mm. And they had this sort of slightly faux sexual imagery about them, yeah. about their, their packaging and about their sound. And there was a sort of slightly gothic tinge to it. But... I mean, Return to Innocence, I, don't, I, I have no problem with it. It's not It's not quite sadness, but it's not far off. And it it has this sort of the, 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 the best, not so much chill-out music, but the, the best of, can we call it slow house? Mm. This sort of stentorian, grind, overpowering, big wall of sound. And you've certainly got that in, in Return to Innocence. It's surprising it was so popular. And I don't certainly don't mean that in a, in, in a, a sneery way at all. It's very memorable. It's beautifully crafted. It doesn't necessarily sound like a hit. You can imagine if another spin-off of Jukebox Jury was going at the time, you can imagine them all going like that. Not because it's rubbish, but because it doesn't sound like a hit. And it certainly isn't rubbish. What I didn't know, Julian Temple video. Did he really? Crikey. He did quite a few pop videos in his time. He was a bit there's there's more there's more Julian Temple pop videos than might be imagined at first glance. Yeah. Always space for the Bee Gees on a now album. Uh, for whom the bell tolls. Got to number four. One of the bi- uh, the first band, I think, to have UK top five singles from four consecutive decades, 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s. You can't knock that career record. And the singles that the Bee Gees have done all that time, oh, yes, fantastic. I, you know, I struggle terribly with the Bee Gees album, though. They're not short of filler beyond... It's, it's like almost a Potemkin Village a Bee Gees album. That you, you have this great front to it, and then we, oh God, oh, crikey! Oh, another one. This song rather underrated, actually. There's a, there's a, there's an awful lot of Robin singing on it as well as uh, mm. as, as mm-hmm. well as Barry. It's very well crafted. It's not. You can imagine. You can imagine this song being a, a question on pointless. Name the Bee Gees <laughs> top ten singles for whom the bell tolls. That'd be a great score on on pointless. But coming back to it, listening. I haven't heard it for years, but coming back to it then. Yeah, it's, it's very, very well produced, by, but Femi Gia did it. Um, and uh, you'd imagine he'd have had a better production career than he's had, or a more extensive production career, because it's a bit of wall of sound. But, you know, it's not staying alive, is it? Alan Jones in Music Week described it as pleasant. Yes, yes, that's a, the, the faintest of praise. Indeed. Now, next to that, Wendy Morton, I could find literally nothing about this woman online. Coming out of the rain, it's a big power ballad. It's always good to be in out of the rain, I suppose. But I, I've not got much on Wendy Morton, I'm afraid. Yeah, well, she she came and went, didn't she? Very, very quickly. Yeah, there's a lot to wrap herself in with this ballad, but it, I think I think she's she's one of those one hit wonders who yeah. was just recruited to be on the hit. Yes, let's get a hit out of it. And because she didn't write the song herself, lest we forget, then I don't think she had too much to fall back on. I mean, it's it's all right. That's a bit like Alan Jones saying, for the bell tolls, it's pleasant. 
Yeah. Um, and okay. I've said it's all right now twice, twice after the actual song called It's All Right. It's all but, right. You know, yeah. that's, that's fair. Yeah. There's quite a few tracks as we move through the album, John, that are just probably all right. And there's some that are probably yeah. slightly sub all right, but we'll come to those. Uh, somebody else who was kind of slightly moving away from after having a very successful year was Dina Carroll. Uh, the perfect year got to number five. Um, I mean, we have Legacy. It's obviously from Sunset Boulevard. So you've got Andrew Webber. You've got lyrics by Don Black, Christopher Hampton. Yeah. Um, but it was Dina, Dina's last hit for a good number of years, finishing off a perfect year with a perfect year. Yes. I mean, did it, Dina Carroll's careers is a fascinating thing. I, I, I spent a day in Dublin with her. And she was absolutely lovely. She was great. She was huge. Just at the time, she was breaking through. And it it seemed as though she was set fair. And I don't know what happened to her. I don't know how the the, the momentum stalled. Almost as in, she, she, she seemed to come from nowhere. She had a, a sustained period. It's all like Wendy Moten with the, the one hit. Mm. She had several hits. The album was massive. And uh, I, I suspect I suspect there's more to this tale than we know. But yeah. it's great. She's a, She is... She proved herself on this to be a singer capable of handling mm. an Andrew Lloyd Webber ballad, which not everyone can do. And it's yeah. it's very classy. It's something that you would you would applaud rather yes. than uh, have your heartstrings tugged by it. But yeah, each to his place. But the, the what happened to Dina Carroll is a very interesting one, I think. That sounds like a Q magazine headline. Whatever happened to Dina Carroll? Yes, yes, yes. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> That covers the first side of what was the vinyl edition, the first track of side two, Phil Collins, and Every Day. Number 15 for Phil, this one. Not one of his, not, not one of his big hits. Again, another, another good pointless another question. Another good pointless um, I really couldn't deal with Phil Collins much at the time, but I've gone back to it. I've gone back to him. And mm. playing these albums, they sound fantastic. Yeah. They really do. He's, he's, yeah, he produced this himself as well as writing it. And I don't think he's ever had enough credit for for being such a, a multitasker. He's yeah. absolutely brilliant. The, the, it's a phenomenal sound. Clearly, he, he learnt it from, from some of the Genesis records. He, I think he understood that music, even with a kind of quite a slender song such as Every Day, you can make it big yeah. and you can make it sound all-conquering. And he did this. he did this very, very well. He deserves more credit yeah. for the sound that he fashioned. It certainly isn't bland. There's an awful lot going on. And the song, by any stretch of the imagination, is it is it one of his best. But but there are there are great things going along. Sitting next to Richard Marks, it sounds like an absolute classic, to be honest. Um, <laughs> now and forever. I had to go back and listen to this one, John. This this had slipped completely off my radar. Yeah, I played it again and uh, couldn't really remember it at all. However, I have to seek up for Richard Marks in one sense. One, he's brilliant on Twitter. Two, yeah. I interviewed him and he's not as you'd imagine. And I mean this in a good way. He's yeah. brilliant to talk to. He's funny. He's witty. He's droll. He's bitchy, hugely entertaining, hugely articulate. And you go away. You go away thinking, Richard Marks, the Richard Marks who's made now and forever, it's like that. Oh, it doesn't doesn't compute at all. He's he's an absolute joy. That's all I'm saying. And we'll take that. But we're not going to watch what I do here, John. We're not going to linger too long on Richard Marks. Oh, you're good at this. You're That's- you're pro. Linger by the Cranberries. Stephen Street production. I'd kind of forgotten about this song. It's beautiful. A little bit later, a couple of years later, I did the, the cover for the Cranberries. And they were a little bit 
I know, I know I said similar things about Ace of Base, but it, it was very, very similar. They were absolutely massive, but they were completely and utterly unsuited to having this level of attention been bestowed upon them. This isn't hindsight after Dolores has, has Awful, awful demise. And you hear, I think, Noel, Noel Hogan, I think it's Noel, who's on one of the uh, the greatest pop videos that I do, and he's much, much more articulate. But I think at the time they were very, very uncomfortable with the level of stardom. They were people from a rural part of Ireland, and they weren't very worldly at all. You know, just because you come from a village doesn't mean that you're, you're not great at being pop stars. But uh, I think even from the very, very early stages when they needed the press, before they started selling records, Dolores was shielded from doing interviews. And if you talk to her, it's obvious that she was she was very, very, she was vulnerable. She was unsure of how to cope. And you're right, Linga, Linga is, is absolutely beautiful. It's certainly one of Stephen Street's better productions. Mm. And there's a gentleness and there's a fragility to it as well. And I think that is, it's reflected in who they were. You know, I got the feeling, speaking to them and dealing with them, that career as successful as they were globally didn't seem sustainable to me. Mm-hmm. I felt like at the time and tried to put that over in the piece that, that I was writing, but I was slightly guarded against it. One, you might be wrong, and two, it's, uh, it's, it's difficult to sow those seeds without evidence apart from your own perception yeah uh and you're often wrong i usually was on most things you know they made such great music as well for, yeah. for the for the most part they were on quite a trajectory and you can understand that must have been quite a pressure for them i think it was i, I just think that they they yeah they'd signed to ireland they were uh, an indie act with an indie sound i think they were they that they sort of saw themselves as a kind of irish cocteau twins in a way and i think that that's the, the status that they would have been much more comfortable with, but suddenly they turn into this this global act. I think they were I think they were absolutely overwhelmed by it. Yeah, yeah. So that's next to Tori Amos on this album as well. Conflict Girl, first single from the second album. Yes, I think it was it was pretty clear at the time how Tori Amos's career was going to go, that she would become this revered singer songwriter, a little bit like the, the Joni Mitchell of her era. And this phase of her selling a lot of records, of her having hit singles on a major label, was temporary. She seemed to know, understand and relish that. Almost that if you get through this phase, that if you have big hits like Cornflake Girl, which without any sense of compromise, is a great prop song. Listen to the piano on that, the way she's pounding away. She, she knew that she was building some kind of catalogue. Yeah, and this catalogue would serve her well, and that she was building also. She interacted with her fans differently. That mm. she was building a very fierce, loyal army of fans who would, whatever diversion she would take, would stick with her. This has proved to be to be the case. You know, I, I went to I went to her house once as well. She lives in uh, in Devon, mm-hmm. and she's got an absolutely beautiful place. And there's she's got a studio there. And she works with a, a husband who's, I think, engineered this record. He certainly didn't produce it. And she can make music in peace and then sort of bring it out to the world. I think she's handled her career brilliantly. But yeah. you go back and listen to, to Cornflake Girl and you think, yeah, wow, this is it. It's like a showcase as to how, as a, without losing any sense of dignity or compromise, that you can have a sustainable, hugely popular career. She's playing, even now, she's on tour as we speak, yeah. playing massive 
well, not massive, but major venues. So she's not gone to cult obscurity. She's just kept things going brilliantly. And some of her later records are absolutely fantastic. Good as Gold, Stupid as Mud uh, by The Beautiful South. Um, not not the toppermost number 23 hit. First single from Meow. I have a difficult relationship with The Beautiful South. I don't know, what what's your take on The Beautiful South? I don't. I, I've never, never had issues with them. I, I, I love the kind of how they presented themselves. I love the idea of the two vocalists often mm. playing across each other and the, the very, very, very biting, mm. very sarcastic, very literate. Yeah. And they dress them up in these sort of very whistleable pop songs. You know, John Kelly produced this and you can tell it sounds brilliant on the radio. You know, look at the lyrics again. They still haven't changed. I, I, the, the beautiful, beautiful South, I cannot, cannot fault. Yeah. Um, and he's a very interesting character too. He can talk about football and bird watching and talk about General Franco with him. I like I like a man who you can talk about General Franco with. <laughs> the end of nineteen ninety four they released Carry On Up the Charts, which highlighted obviously what Big Singles Act had been. But that album came out in November and was the second biggest selling album of nineteen ninety four. So that says it all. You never know whether the audience are, are getting it, what they're saying, because partially because they're such pretty pop songs. Even things like a little time. You know, the video gives you some hints of it, but look at that lyric. The destruction of a of a, a relationship. But I think almost they had two different audiences. I think they had one who got it, who got the yeah. lyrics, and another audience who didn't need to get the lyrics. Yeah. yeah and exactly. wow, those two came together. Great. Meatloaf was on... A Second Wind <laughs> with Bat Out of Hell 2 uh, and this was Rock and Roll Dreams Come Through which of course had been a Jim Steinman hit It was the nearest It was the nearest Jim Steinman got to yeah. hit and of course now Jim Steinman lest we forget one of the few people who unequivocally you can use the word genius next to absolutely yeah. unquestionable he is he's one of the great composers and producers of any era in pop music and Rock and Roll Dreams Come Through actually still mm. makes me cry. Yeah. I think it is one of the great songs of all time. It's certainly the best song on this compilation by a country mile. And what it does with Jim Steinman, as Jim Steinman does at his best, is it encapsulates those childhood feelings. It's all about listening to music as a kid, and it's about how music can comfort, about how it can make lives better, and how music doesn't fail you. Yeah. Music can't fail you. You know, rock and roll dreams come through. That's what you're doing when you've got a, a sort of awful childhood, a terrible domestic existence as a kid. You can go under, I don't know if people do it now, you can go under the sheets and listen to your music and yeah. it can take you absolutely anywhere. But the sound of this, it hasn't got one chorus, it's got three separate choruses on it. It builds and builds and builds. And Meatloaf is, of course, he was the ideal muse for Jim Steinman. Nobody sang Steinman like Meatloaf. And, of course, if you listen to Steinman's own vocals on the original, that's an absolute advertisement yeah. for how great a singer Meatloaf was. But yet again, people say, and I'm repeating myself here, but I don't care. People say, don't meet your heroes. Jim Steinman, meeting Jim Steinman, just one. I'm in a restaurant with Jim Steinman. And, oh, look, he's ordered everything on the menu. He's the Lord of Excess. On this giant table, there's everything. And he's having little bits. And his long hair is, is going into the food. And he's going, have this, have this. What do you think? And 
meeting him, spending time with him, it, it's as you'd imagine, in the best of ways. And he's so intelligent. Well, so he was so intelligent. He was so articulate. He was such good fun. Yeah. He was laugh out loud funny. And he'd talk about these the people that he'd, he'd written with, how he'd worked with hair supply. <laughs> how hair supply just didn't get him. How he'd worked with, with Sisters of Mercy. And how, of course, Eldritch utterly and completely shared his vision, a vision which, frankly, he imposed on Sisters of Mercy and made them sound great yeah. or better than they would ever, ever sound, lest we forget. I just wish he'd done more. Well, being as selective as he always was, of course, yeah. I, I wish he'd got more involved in straight in writing those brilliant songs and producing them. But listen to Steinman's work, honestly. It's yeah. extraordinary. Rocks, Primal Scream. Um, right, okay, so which version of Primal Scream have we got here? It's not the dance one, it's not the Andy Weatherall one, it's the Memphis one. <coughs> Debut track off Give Out But Don't Give Up. I wonder, what did Q think about that? Q likes Screamadelica. It was very, it was slightly mm. self-consciously thinking Screamadelica. <laughs> As Q tended to be when, when confronted with, with uh, a new style of music. Yeah, the Bobby Gillespie, obviously, at that time was a, a, an old-fashioned pop star. He yeah. was prone to usual drugs and drink and, and, and all that stuff. Rocks, you know, getting Tom Dowd in to produce it and sounding like the Rolling Stones, yeah. as they so desperately wanted to do. It was a it was a brave direction. You should probably have, have liked it a bit better. I think there was a sense that they were doing this, but they weren't very good at it. Perhaps because of Andrew Weatherall, they were really good at being a, a dance act. All the pieces are in the right place. Mm. But there's something that doesn't quite fit together. And listening to it back, it's still there. That's that sense of hesitation that prevents you from truly embracing it. Have you seen the documentary about the original Memphis version, where basically Alan McGee got the master tapes back and said, no, that isn't enough, and sent George Draculius to basically mix it and make it sound more American? No, no, I haven't seen that. That'd be great. Yeah. Because yeah. you can also you can you can tell George Draculius is on this as well. It's got his stamp on it too. But I even saw McGee doing that. I think it, the, the, there's that sense of contrivance. And a, a, I think that's quite hard to fake. Although, you know, if you read, if you read Bobby Gillespie's book, yeah. which is quite entertaining, then obviously that is, you know, his love for that kind of music is, is absolutely unequivocally genuine. It just felt like such a cosmic shift from what Screamadelica had been. I don't think you can replicate that magic. And they didn't do Screamadelica too. Yeah. Which is, is obviously a good thing. But the change in the seismic change of direction only works if you're really good at it. Yeah. Okay, so we're almost coming to the end of this side. We've got Gin Blossoms and Hey Jealousy, American rock, grunge. What is it? I don't know. Sort of poppy Americana, isn't it? I mean, it, 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 it has any band ever sounded more like a one hit wonder than Gin Blossoms, <laughs> apart from Deep Blue Something, yeah. um, which is, yeah. it, it obviously shares a sort of kinship with. Yeah, it's, it, it's great. Hit today. Gone tomorrow, although I'm sure aficionados will tell us that they're probably still going in, in some bar somewhere. But yeah, this is a great song. It's their moment. They they deserved it. They executed it very well. Doug Hopkins clearly knows his way around a song. But, you know, that's it. Do you want to hear any more Gin Blossoms? Nah, probably not. Uh, not a one-hit wonder is Disarm, uh, Smashing Pumpkins. I remember how big Siamese Dream sounded the first time I heard it. But obviously, we could spend a whole podcast on its own talking about Billy Corgan and, and this tortured process yes. that he goes through and everything else. Butch Vig produced this. I think Smashing Pumpkins, uh, the, their best, were either when they were angry, like, you know, the, in spite of all my rage, I'm just a rat in the cage, all that stuff, but also when they were much more 
mellow and reflective. And there's, there's a real, I think, beauty to disarm. Mm. And you hear it intermittently throughout the Smashing Pumpkins catalogue. I wish you hear, I wish you heard it more. I wish he developed this line of songwriting and production more because it, it's for a Butch Vig production, it's absolutely massive. And I think in brackets, you can hear a bit of that in garbage much yeah. later. Um, I just wish he'd gone this way. If he had, and if he developed that and bettered it, then the Smashing Pumpkins would have been great, apart yeah. from rather than just being really good. Yeah, it's an absolutely terrific record. No, so around this time, I saw someone play live in a, in a bull ring in Portugal, and they, they were absolutely fantastic then. But of course, just after, just after I'd uh, interviewed them, then Jimmy Chamberlain went off and got himself arrested for taking a load of heroin. So that's probably the, the effect of being interviewed by me. <laughs> and on that note, we will flip across. Record two, side one, and we have, I suppose you could probably say, a gear shift. Dupe. A number one, lest we forget, for the Dutch dance duo Peter Garnevsky and Frederick Ferry Ruderhoff. And yes, I am reading that off notes, listeners. <laughs> well, the, the Dupe was essentially the Dutch duo who you just pronounced so well, which I, I shan't be emulating. Uh, they, they had a, 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 an assortment of pseudonyms, which... Uh, I think uh, kept the Dutch people entertained in the mid '90s for for a few months, possibly. This was basically the Charleston with a bit of a beat. It's sort of like it's, it's like Jive Bunny, but if Jive Bunny had come from Amsterdam rather than Rotherham, and it's harmless, speeds the Charleston up a bit, and it went to number one, which you know, all right, fine, um, well, well, well done, well done, Duke. Going back it is listenable. Yeah, I'm going to do a quote from um, Sylvia Patterson, who, reviewing it in Smash Hits, described it as ludicrously catchy Mickey Mouse rave-up sensation, featuring someone playing the spoons, someone on the party blower, and a stylophone. I'm there. She's got it. Yes, me too. (laughs) Now that's why music albums often will say they have all the hits of the day, which is great. And sometimes they'll take a punt on a single being a hit, and sometimes they get it right, and sometimes they get it wrong. And next track, they got it wrong. Wonder Man by Right Said Fred. Right Said Fred, they kind of discredited themselves with the, the cranky views on vaccines and mm. the video of them playing in some shopping centre in Hartlepool for precisely zero people that surfaced last year. They seem to be quite cantankerous and uh, rather ill at ease with themselves, I think. And Wonder Man, you're right. I'm about now taking a punt. I think they were perhaps taking a punt on the back catalogue, projecting mm. this to be some sort of top 30 hit. But you got a feeling that when they selected it, they hadn't heard it. Fancy the new right said Fred one? They've gone yes. Uh, can we hear it? Uh, oh, in a few weeks, in a few weeks. But just put it on, eh? Just put it, put it on the record. And they, you know, they've got a slot to fill. And, they, yeah, and then they play it and think, oh, God almighty, yeah. what have we done? Number 55. There were 54 better songs in the charts that week, right said Fred fans. Uh, <laughs> So keep that in mind. And uh, officially one of the lowest charting songs ever on a new album. So we'll maybe just leave it at that. Let's skip to Culture Beat, shall we? Mr. Vane had been huge and this was single number three. Don't ask me what single number two was. Uh, no, because I don't know. Culture Beat, they were, they, how can we say this? They were of their time, but I liked the way that they, they kind of blended this rather hardcore beat with some often female vocalists. Mm. And if 
if if I'd spent my formative years in a in a in clubs, which I didn't, of course, I think I'd have really really enjoyed this. So it's, it, it it sounds a bit like a holiday hit. I uh, this is this is obviously sacrilege in the world of culture beat, but I much much prefer this to to Mr. Vane. I think it, it moves along, moves along with great, great exuberance, and it's brilliantly well constructed. It's got a great, it's got a great sound, and, yeah. I, and, I, and I know that sort of sounds like I'm hedging my bets a bit, but you can imagine this being played in a club, possibly on a, a Balearic island, hmm. and it's sounding like the best song in the world. Obviously, you'd have had to take an industrial quantities of drugs to feel like that, but I can imagine. That's how it might be, and it's all right. It's all right. It's, it's, it's there's a bit of thought into this. I think it's well crafted, and it's still, whilst being of its time, sounds all right today. We'll go back to meatloaf. I never thought I'd compare culture beat to meatloaf. There's a melody in it that sticks. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a pop song. It's a pop song with a lot of interesting musical baggage. And great. What's the problem? I just wish they called the next album Musical Baggage. That would have been brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sitting next to that, again, in their wonderful, resplendent Europopness is Too Unlimited. It's maybe It may be another pointless answer if, if there were a category on Too Unlimited. Mm. Let the beat control mm. your body, number six. Too Unlimited again. You see, it's very odd the sequencing to this album because they really, I know you're supposed to go Rocky first disc and Dan second, but they've got an awful lot of quite similar songs on this, this this second side and let the beat control your body is quite similar to anything and too unlimited of course there, there was that fantastic radio interview with them where the i think it was victor lewis smith was going no 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 that's a bit negative isn't it and of course these poor people had no idea the level of satire that he was he was operating at but just because they didn't get our, our English humour doesn't mean that they didn't craft fine records. There's an urgency to this. There's an mm. urgency to this. It's good. It's again, and I'm repeating myself once more, but it, it, repetition doesn't mean things are wrong. It's of its time. Yes. Unquestionably. Yes. But too limited, they brought a lot of gaiety to the world. Why should we knock them? And, and looking back, they still sound fantastic, even without the context of the era that they were operating in. So, yeah, yeah let's support Too Unlimited. It's wonderfully unassuming in its intentions. Let the beat control your body. Risk assessment elements in there. We wouldn't obviously advocate letting the beat completely control your body, uh, listeners. No. And just to leave uh, Too Unlimited, nominated in the category for Best Song at the MTV Awards that year. This one, really? <laughs> I mean, I'm quite yeah, apparently. I'm leaving a pause in there for listeners who maybe have just maybe kind of slid off their chair, but there we go. So, <laughs> so songs with legacies. The next song I like to move it, Real to Real featuring the Mad Stuntman, is a song that has continued to have a legacy since 1994. It hit number five in, in that year. I believe it's continued on through many animated films. You don't hear much about the Mad Stuntman these days, oh. do you? I wonder what he's up to. You really should be quite sober when you're a stuntman, rather than being mad. I'd, I'd imagine. Maybe, maybe that, 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 maybe that would be his undoing. I like the movie; it's great. He's got that gritty vocals, which we assume is the, the Mad Stuntman doing his stuff. And you can also, you can understand, I think, why it, it is so soundtrack friendly. Yeah, it does. You can imagine a, a, a gang, a gang of, of dozens of, of minions dancing yeah. along to this. You can imagine it working well in all those kind of giant. Disney things, and it's also it's also very it's, it's uplifting. It, it, it's, it's optimistic. He does like to move it. He's not ambivalent about moving it. He actually likes to move it, and I think that shows through. There's a massive 
a, a, the exuberance to it. The Mad Stuntman, the right man at the right time for the right song. Uh, Mad Stuntman, Mark Quashy is his name. Oh, God, because he oh, he wrote it. They're the same people. They're the same yeah. person. The Mad Stuntman was a songwriter. I yeah. Think maybe, yeah. maybe he doesn't have to do stunts anymore. Probably not. Let's go to track eight, which is Teenage Sensation, Credit to the Nation. This was sort of the, the, the nascent phase of, of British hip-hop. Now, whatever the equivalent of, of hip-hop is, but you know, with acts like Dave and Stormzy and everything, then clearly the British hip-hop-influenced dance music has unquestionably found its feet. But back then, it hadn't. There was, you know, they had the ruthless rap assassins, and of course you had credit to the nation who, who do this. It was slightly self-conscious, but it was all right. I think credit to the nation haven't got enough credit for actually pushing... British hip-hop forwards. It yeah. isn't like, say, Derek B, who I rather enjoyed, but he was just a rapper. They yeah. were doing much more interesting musical things as well. It's a start, it's a starting point. And for that, it's an important, it's an important song for credit to the nation, but it's also, I think, quite an important moment for British hip-hop. This was the start of being able to take British hip-hop seriously. They spent the whole of 93 touring. They had toured with Manic Street Preachers, Levelers, Therapy, Disposable Heroes of Hypocrisy. They had worked that crowd to get to where they where they wanted to be. Yes, they had. They had. They, they, you know, they were, it's almost like that they were trying to do it in traditional in the traditional way by by touring, by building yeah. up a fan base, by introducing this British hip hop music to an unsuspecting audience. Yeah, and you can imagine that at times they found it very, very difficult, and that not some of the audiences of the people that you've been talking about are quite conservative, yeah. and they may not have, have welcomed British hip hop finding its feet. But yeah. on the other hand, you can imagine that if you can seduce these audiences and you can turn them around, you know, if you can get a levelers audience on your side, yeah, kids' television ain't going to be much of a problem, is it? Let's jump to the last track on this side. Here I stand, Bitty McLean. Peter McLean, obviously, he was he was originally a, a, a studio operator for UB40. UB40 were always good at, at patronising people, not in a not, not in a negative sense, but they're always they would put some of their money and resources behind young people. And Bitty McLean, obviously, he, he had hits of which this was one. He was he was very amiable. There was a kind of friendly, reassuring presence about Bitty McLean that meant that he could take a, a more poppy approach than UB40. And we could talk about UB40 for a long time, how yeah. unfairly maligned yeah. they are. But mm. Bitty McLean was kind of the, the overtly pop side of UB40. Who's a good singer? You know, this song written by Justin Hines, I think. It's good, it's friendly, sounds great on the radio. It's very summery, it's wholly, unlike, say, Credit to the Nation, unthreatening. But there's yeah. nothing wrong with that. There's a, there's a place for it. And there's a, there is a sense of quality about it too. So we move to the final section. It kicks off with Sweet Lullaby by Deep Forest, which is, I'm guessing, a kind of close relation to Enigma. Would that be correct? Oh, yes, absolutely. A close, close relation to anything that Enigma were doing. It seems they were on a major label, Deep Forest, so there's clearly some kind of record company push towards having this sort of music. But if Enigma were, in fact, really bland and really average, then they would be Deep Forest. You know, with the best will in the world, it's incredibly derivative of any sort of chill-out song. It's incredibly derivative of what... The Enigma were doing on their, their, their first album. And to me, it lacks that kind of 
authenticity that I think Enigma actually had. You don't get that with Deep Forest. I was suspicious about them at the time. And yeah. going back, I think I was right to be so suspicious. Yeah, not much else to say there. Next to that is Bjork. I probably wore out my copy of debut throughout 1993. This was the fifth single from it. Um, violently happy. Mm -hmm. Here I'm afraid, Ian. We, 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 we've been singing from very similar hymn sheets throughout yeah. the thing. I, 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 I'm surprised to have found such a kindred spirit. But here, here I think, Ian, we must part company. Empress's New Clothes. Oh, interesting. I don't think there's anything there. For all the stuff that Nelly Hooper's doing on this, you know, he produced it, he co-wrote co it with her and everything. There's very little emotion in it. Mm. I think there's very little soul. And I think it's too careful, too aware of its own potential for greatness. And I think that the Empress's new clothes, because if you take away that veneer of Bjorkism, mm. there's nothing there. I simply cannot see it. I never have been able to. And also, I think this particular song is, is a, a good example of what I think about it. I don't think there's anything there, Ian. Mm. And I'm sorry, we 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 again we've we've parted oh. company terrible. We've had a we've had a shocking uh, we've had a shocking row in this. <laughs> Our relationship is coming to an end. <laughs> okay, I actually fully appreciate what you're saying because I think the production, the production of that album works incredibly well. It was bringing aspects of what Massive Attack had started to do. It was bringing aspects of hip hop and house, and it was putting it in the mainstream. I think that's what was the big appeal of debut. It almost kind of signposted the next level for you know bands that would then pick up that crossover sound. I think that's a, that's a, that's a very very interesting approach, and I think with say Massive Attack, you can immerse yourself in Massive Attack, and I don't think. You can immerse yourself in Bjork in mm. that way. Nowadays, you don't hear a lot of Bjork tracks on the radio. They don't, I think, take people back to a time. They don't, you know, bring back that reminiscence of a 90s period. No, I mean, music, don't forget, music is a time machine. Yeah. You know, music takes you back to wherever you are when you listen to it. And I think you're right. You never get that feeling with Bjork, admittedly, because I wasn't, as enamoured with you, as you, with it at the time. But I think you're right. Mm. Interesting. Yes, very interesting. Okay, so we mentioned Massive Attack. He, he mm. says, pulling himself back to a script, we'll move to Sharon Nelson, um, who had moved on from Massive Attack by this point, and was very much in the middle of what was a relatively successful solo period. Fourth single from the What Silence Knows album, which again was Mercury nominated, and number 19, Uptight. Karen Nelson, she, she, her voice, her voice was, was a, a thing of absolute, utter mm -hmm. wonder. Gorgeous. Um, yeah, it's, it's similar to, but I think preferable to say Heather Smalls, in that it was this big, soulful voice which could convey a, a certain level of emotion. You know, she co-wrote this, of course. I didn't, never thought she got quite the right the songs that she that 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 voice deserved. Mm. But I don't think she came any closer than this. It's a big grandstanding record, and a, and it almost mines the depth of emotion that you wanted Sharon Nelson to mine. Prince B is, is involved in the writing of this, and I think maybe if she had superior songwriting collaborators, mm. I think her career would have taken a, a different, superior, long-term trajectory. But Uptight is always 
an example of what she could do. UK buying public, were there really 18 singles better that week than uptight in the chart? I don't think so. I don't think so either. Let's just pick out a couple just to finish off here. Let, let's go to Gabrielle, Because of You. This was the fourth single from Find Your Way. Um, Gabrielle's an interesting one because it, Dreams is fantastic, of course. Mm. She has, how to put this, she has, a, she has a, an instantly recognisable voice. She doesn't have is a kind of instantly recognisable sound. Be, and obviously I'm all in favour of everybody being diverse and making different types of music. But she doesn't make different types of music, but her stuff sounds too different to give her an identity. I think that is why her singles career is so bitty. It's almost like every time she was starting from scratch. And I think that's why it's sitting where it sits on this compilation album. I think as well, it, it just yes. <laughs> tucked away, tucked away in a way that Gabrielle is very much tucked away yes. too herself. And there's, there's this kind of run. The other artist I'd pick out here is Carleen Anderson, Nervous Breakdown, which kick-starting her debut career. She'd had hits with Young Disciples. Lest we forget, quite a quite an R&B legacy here as well. I think here, Nervous Breakdown, massively underrated. Yes. I think it should have been a far bigger hit than it was. And mm. I think we should be looking back, me and you, right now, saying Nervous Breakdown. That's the one that started Carleen Anderson's fabulous career, which is going to that day. And look at her. She's a huge star. This is how it all began. Very, much, very dissimilar to what I was saying about Gabrielle. This sounds like the, the, the absolute first step on a major career. The yeah. vocals are great. The song swings. It's got a lot. Of, there's so much charisma coming out of it and out of her. And I simply don't know what happened to her, how she didn't build on this. It should have been a bigger hit at the time as well. Yeah. So you suspect that she wasn't necessarily being marketed correctly. Because at that time, if you remember, in 94, throughout those years, there was always a succession of British female singers who were going to crack it and make it big. And I think virtually none, Gabrielle possibly came closest, virtually mm. none of them did, partly because the British music industry didn't know how to market female, soulful British singers. And I think, but I think this is probably what, where the the process which Carleen Anderson fell victim to. But listen to this, I think. This, I know. Is, this is great. Right, I'm going to just pick out one more track on here, John, and it's, yeah. it's Urban Cookie Collective, and people up and down the country are putting their hands in the air going, the key to the secret, yeah. But it's not. It's a song called Sail Away, but... I love anything that Diane Charlemagne puts her vocal to and is one of these great lost vocalists. This was the third single for the Urban Cookie Collective, uh, number 18. Yes, well, I prefer it to the, the, the massive hit. I love this. It's, it's a ray of sunshine in a dark world, Ian. You're right about her vocals too. Her vocals are impossibly sunny. You think of this and you can imagine, a bit of it comes out in the video, in fairness. You can imagine her smiling as she's singing this. She's bringing a little bit of joy in. And behind her, it's so busy, not in an annoying way, but it's so busy, there's so much going on that it's really full of thought. and It's overflowing with ideas. You know, they captured the moment. They couldn't and they didn't sustain it like that. Of course, yeah. it was going to end very briefly, but that's not the point. You know, they've had a moment in the sun. And you're right, Dan Charlemagne, she proper singer, 
Yeah, so she'd, she'd contributed that vocal to Goldie's inner city life as well. And, and, and you know, I, th- I think that was very much one of the kind of last big pieces of work that she did. Yes, I mean, she's a, she's a terrible loss because, like we said, we had real, there was real sunshine in her voice. And even even going up against some, someone as uncompromising as the, the backbeats which Goldie provided, yeah. then she brought light to him. Yeah. Because the music that he was making at that time was incredibly dark. Yeah. And yeah. then you had this lovely vocal on top of it that mm. she she made her mark there and she made her mark in different areas. Yeah. And if she, if she was still around to date, then I'm sure she'd be in demand. No disrespect to Degrees of Motion and Joe Roberts, but we're going to stop there. <laughs> if you really want to go back and hear Shine On by Degrees of Motion and Lover by Joe Roberts, <laughs> you go. But I think that's a good point to finish because it's such a wonderful high pop moment on there as well and i'm just going to say this as well this is the joy of um the internet urban cookie collective did a cover version of champagne supernova in 1996 that was never commercially released because noel gallagher blocked it oh stop it yeah stop it let people do it noel and i'm and i mentioned he didn't, that. didn't stop mike flowers did he well no and i mentioned that because at this point of 1994, Oasis were just beginning to blossom. They were just starting to kind of release, was it Supersonic or whatever? They were just moving into that kind of zone. Yes, blocked the Urban Cookie Collective cover of Champagne Super. It's probably out there on the internet somewhere, but... Um, I hope so. Normally at this point, what we'd ask is, is there tracks that you would choose off there, just a handful to represent 1994 for you? Rock and, roll, rock and Roll Dreams Come Through, it absolutely encapsulates how I feel about music and the effect that music has had on me personally, in addition to it being a magical, wonderful song, so beautifully produced and so fantastically sung by Meatloaf. It's a song that after all these years, I've never got tired of. And hearing it again, not that I'm not unfamiliar with it, but hearing it again for this podcast and to be able to talk to people about it is such a, a privilege to do. From this record, I definitely take Carleen Anderson mm. with a little bit of, a little bit of regret because it didn't open the doors for her that it should have done. I would take Ace of Bass because I think we, we must all have Europop in, in our lives. And I think there's, there's, even with the key changes that they have towards the end, which is just great, of course, take Tori Amos as well, because that's just such a, a good song, so well crafted and produced and really in, both intelligent uncompromising and incredibly accessible too. And what more do you want from your music? How good a snapshot of Spring 94 is this album for you? Some of it is an absolutely perfect snapshot because of what I was doing, because of what Key Magazine that I was working for at the time was was pushing as well. I mean, the first side is almost a, a list of people that I, I interviewed and met at the time. So, of course, that's a, that's a fantastic time capsule for me. A lot of the second side, slightly different because it is stuff that Q tended not to cover, not all of it, but, but some of it. Certainly, uh, even, even I couldn't get anything on dupe in, in to queue. Not, not of course that I tried for a second. So that part is, is it's almost like the alternative world that queue were almost consciously ignoring. Not all of it. It's not quite as clear cut as the first disc and the second disc being me and not me. Not absolutely, hundred percent, not at all. Now twenty seven does show how varied and Catholic and eclectic 
music was at the time. And when music is varied, Catholic and eclectic, then that is what makes that whole period so special. And yes, you can apply it to other areas uh, and other, other eras too. But here for 1994, that's as good a snapshot as you're going to get. And yes, people have been missed out, but you know who cares? They're not there. But is there is a great snapshot. John, thank you so much for joining us here on the Back to Now podcast and heading back to spring 1994. Thank you, Ian. It's been an absolute pleasure. All those memories. Great. Indeed. And do. Oh, yes. And, and do. Let's not forget do. John, thanks very much. Thanks, Ian. You take care.